Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Answering the Call, offering a glimpse into the spiritual journeys of local priests, deacons, and religious. And now, Answering the Call with Elizabeth Vicicelli. Thanks for joining us on Answering the Call here on St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 and streaming live on stgabrielradio.com. I'm Elizabeth Ficicelli. My guest today has come in quite a distance, an hour and a half today, and I'm so glad he did because he's got a great story. He is Deacon Doug Mould from Sacred Heart Parish in Coshocton. So thank you, Deacon Doug, for joining us and making the long trek into uh, the radio station today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It wasn't as long as you might think. Oh, that's good. Good news. Um, now, Deacon Doug, your Catholic identity was first formed by your parents as you were growing up. So paint us a, a picture of, of how they viewed the church and clergy and, and how they practiced that faith. Our family was always um, well grounded in the Catholic faith growing up. And it was, I never remember a time not going to church on Sundays with my parents um, and, and going to Mass uh, growing up. I th- I re- the first church I remember was Immaculate Conception where we had the cry room on the right next to the altar. Mm-hmm. And I remember mom and dad sitting with us back there and we were just had the first, first row seats at the altar. Um, that was always uh, a neat part of my growing up. And um, my first four grades in school were going to Immaculate Conception School. And I, and I do remember that pretty vividly. And uh, did your parents have a like a uh, respect for the clergy? Was that part of your? They had upbringing? a very high respect for the clergy. Um, I don't know if I really recognized that until I was uh, in high school and college. But um, when we moved to parishes to Saint Anthony, uh, I remember my dad being very involved with the parish council and with the church. Uh, Mom and Dad would befriend the the pastors of the church and also would get to know the seminarians that were studying at the Josephinum, and they became family friends to us. So it was something where they were always identified with the church, and we we got to respect the clergy very well through that. Did that foster in you as a young boy, you know, the inclination perhaps maybe to be a priest? Do you ever think about that? Honestly, I did not. Um... I only went to Catholic school through fourth grade, and after that, I went to public school. And whether that that didn't take me away from the faith, but I think that I just wasn't quite fostered as deeply into the faith after that point. Um, church was still mandatory, and it was still something that we did as a family growing up. But I don't think I really looked toward the toward the clergy then. What were you thinking about doing with your life as you were growing up and thinking about college? What, what were your plans? My plans was to become an engineer. I seemed to be very mathematically inclined, and, it, and I just seemed to be led more toward uh, a technical uh, background. And um, I went to a Bowling Green State University for college, uh, got, a, got a degree in design technology, so, which led me into the manufacturing business as a professional. Did you practice your faith while you were in college? On, on and off, I did. Uh, I would go to Mass while I was there. There was a St. Thomas More parish right next to the campus. I would go to church, but I didn't make it a habit of being faithful to it every single Sunday. Something else happened in your college years. You would meet your future wife, Susan. I did. I met her as, when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, I was a big hockey fan when I was there. Uh, Bowling Green's known for their hockey mm-hmm. school. And I actually met her when she was on a date with somebody else at a hockey game. But that 
one thing led to another, and we started seeing each other then. Now, she wasn't Catholic, though. She was not. She was not. She was uh, Methodist. Okay. So was that a, an obstacle in your relationship? It was not. Uh, when we started dating, uh, when I would go to church, she would go to Mass with me. Um, and when, then when we started getting more serious, um, she just stayed with me, never said that she wanted to become Catholic or said that my Catholicity, my being Catholic was a problem for her. But eventually she would be um, led into the church, kind of on her own. Yes, after she graduated from college, uh, before I did, um, she actually got a job working at a Catholic school up in Elyria, St. Mary's, I think. And while she was there, she started taking private instruction, uh, learning about the Catholic faith, and had all intentions of becoming Catholic very soon. Okay. So you and Susan were married and moved to Coshocton in, in around 1981. 1981. And you became members of Sacred Heart Parish where you are today. And and she did formally enter the church at, at that point or About about 6 months after we were married, um she came in she made her profession of faith. All right. So the two of you now are newly married, both Catholic. Um how was your mass attendance at this point? Did that pick up a little bit more since college? It picked up a little bit more, but again, at that time I don't think it was um, just a weekly regimen. What was it that began to change that in your life? Probably when we started having children, mm-hmm. getting them baptized, and we realized we we if we're going to raise our children Catholic, we need to be pra- practicing it ourselves. And I think it, that happens often to married couples. You know, once the kids come, the relationship with the parish becomes more serious and more permanent and you begin to get more involved and that happened to you in fact it sounds like susan started getting more involved even before you did she did um about a year and a half after we were married she actually became a ccd teacher at this at the church and which was wonderful um i think at that time she was probably practicing the faith a little bit stronger than i was okay but eventually you yourself then began to get involved yes in what ways were you starting to get involved as our kids started getting older, I just started um, being more attentive, first of all, at what was going on at Mass uh, and with the church, getting involved in a couple of different things. Um, I ended up being a part of parish council for a few years and becoming a lector, uh, getting more involved with that. We're talking with Deacon Doug Mould. He's the deacon at Sacred Heart Parish in Coshocton, and you're listening to Answering the Call here on St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. AM820, and I'm your host, Elizabeth Ficicelli. So, Deacon Doug, you would discover the importance of church in another way in your life, and that is to cope with tragedy. Talk about the loss of your brother and and where your faith came into play in that situation for you. Okay. Uh, After I became a lector and really started getting more involved, learning more about what was going on at church, um, I learned of my brother's death in an airline accident back in 1992. and, and it was tragic. Uh, I think, though, that the faith background and support that we had always had in our family was a tremendous benefit because it allowed me to lean on my faith for the support and for the growth that would come because of that. And, and I really learned about um, the love of God at that point. And I think that that's probably, if I were to look at one turning point in my life, that made me depend more on God. That was it. Yeah. And sometimes an incident like that, the, the loss of someone we love, um, especially it sounds like someone who was in the prime of their life, you know, can start to get us thinking about where our lives are going. 
So would you say that that experience um, and how you work through it not only uh, was a turning point in your faith, but did it prepare you for, um, you know, in some way that where God would eventually call you, which was obviously the diaconate, was that situation something where you began to think, what am I doing with my life? I don't know if I ever asked myself that question, but it d- it definitely helped prepare me. But I don't think that that was the thing that s- that told me you need to look at the diaconate or look at something further. But it was definitely something that helped prepare me for what would come later. Okay. Well, go ahead and uh, tell us, how did the diaconate ministry come about for you? After my brother died, I got involved in our parish bereavement uh, ministry. Uh, it was something that, that was just starting at the time. And we were get, we were preparing ourselves for the um, for our first memorial service that we were going to be having that would become an annual tradition. And Deacon Andy Duda... Uh, was talking to me at the, in the sacristy as we were preparing for that, and he looked at me and he said, have you ever thought about the diaconate? Now, our parish was already had two deacons at the time, so I was familiar with, with what a deacon was or who a deacon was. And at the time I said, no, I haven't. And so I didn't think about it again for at least a year. And you didn't talk to Susan or anyone about that little conversation? At that, po- at that point, no. Okay. Because it was still a shock to me <laughs> that, that somebody would ask me that question. Okay, just kind of tucked it in the back of your, your heart or your Correct. mind. Okay, okay. And then what happened? It was it was the next year at our memorial service again. Um, Deacon Bob Hullhouse had passed away during that previous year. And Deacon Andy was talking to me in the sacristy again. And he said, boy, I don't know what we're going to do now that Bob is gone. Mm. And that just kind of watered the seed that he had planted the year before. That's when I started talking to a few other people. Of course, the first person I spoke with about it was my wife, Susan. What was was her response? What was her thought? She didn't fall down in shock. (laughs) So it wasn't a total surprise. It didn't seem to be. She she encouraged me to to explore it further, to see what would be involved. Um, I don't think either of us were prepared for what would be involved. But um, then I started talking to a couple of friends, mentioning it, and nobody seemed terribly surprised, which still surprised me. Um, I would have a few people come to me and ask if I was studying to become a deacon or maybe that I should become a deacon. Really? Interesting. And these were those were completely unsolicited responses from people. Um, they, would just, they would just come to me. So I started thinking about it a little bit more. Um, I set up a meeting with my pastor to talk to him about it. But in the meantime, more things would would happen that seemed kind of eerie. Uh, the principal of our school at the time, Sister Johanna, was a friend of ours for our family. And I was meeting with her at my parents' house, and I still had not said anything to my parents yet. Mm-hmm. And I pulled Sister Johanna aside and I said, Sister, I need to talk to you about something. I've been thinking about becoming a deacon. And she said, oh, I know. <laughs> and I told her, you can't because I haven't mentioned it to anybody except Susan and a couple people. And she said, well, you must have because Sister Teresita said something to me about it just last week. <laughs> so somehow people were talking about it, maybe, but it, it clued me in on something that Bishop Campbell said on a show here just a few weeks ago, that sometimes other people see things in us mm-hmm. that we don't see ourselves. 
That's very and true. And they need to bring that out. Yeah, and we hear that from our, our deacon guests, it, it, that affirmation from others is often a clear sign that there is a calling going on here. So, mm-hmm. so you began the formal application process in the late 1990s, and you were accepted into the diaconate program. H- how did you find out the news officially? Uh, I actually found out about it from a phone call from my wife. Uh, I wasn't expecting to hear anything until January of that year. I can't remember if it was 97, 98. I think that's when it was. And we got a letter from home, and she called me at work and said, Hello, future deacon. <laughs> and that's that's when I found out that I got accepted. Probably a phone call you'll always remember. I, I will. And we've had deacons mention that, too, that the wives are the first ones to mm-hmm. open the envelope and, and see the news. Now, early in the formation process, you and Susan would face a major struggle regarding Susan's health. So talk about that and the kind of thoughts it invoked about in you about the uh, diaconate path that you were on. When I was in the application process, we found out that my wife Susan was diagnosed with breast cancer. And we discussed, is this something that we really need to pursue? She still encouraged me to, to keep with the application process and to keep going. Um, that one way or another, if I got accepted or not, it's what it's where God would lead me to go. And it wasn't until we were actually getting ready for the psychologicals that we found out that this was taking place. And um, it was just a really tough ordeal to go through when when we we found that out. And she had her she had her surgery and. Um, started her chemotherapy then right when right before uh, we found out that I was accepted into the program. Talk a little about the situation with a deacon and his wife. You know, most of our deacons are married. And um, so, so our listeners understand that when a man is, you know, going to become ordained a deacon, that if something were to happen to his wife, mm-hmm. that he would remain celibate at that point. And so talk about that because I would imagine that had to have come into your mind at, at that situation. It, it did. It did come into my mind. And we had several meetings with um, with Deacon Duda who helped guide me through the process. And he reminded me of that too, saying that you know if something were to happen, then I am to remain celibate. This, this is what we're called to do. Uh, our first vocation, of course, is marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where God led me first. Um, but if something were to happen, then I would be—I don't want to say—I would be tied to the diaconate, and, and you know, have to be, remain celibate there. I know that there have been some cases where, if a man has young children, right, um, there can be dispensation, right, uh, given for that man to marry again for the sake of the children. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean he wouldn't be in love with, and you know, that, that sure. love wouldn't be a part of that. But but we talked about this and knew what the. We, we knew what was facing us. So both of you seem to still be on the same page about yes. let's go forward with this yes. and put this in God's hands. Then you'd find yourself in the same kind of struggle two years after you'd been ordained a deacon with Susan's health. Actually, it was six years. Oh, six years. It was okay. six years. Um, right. She, she was first diagnosed in 97, which was right when we were applying for the diaconate. And then uh, again in 2003, um, found out that she had breast cancer again mm. on, the, on the other side. It was a different kind of breast cancer, so we knew that it wasn't metastasized, um, which was fortunate because it was easier to deal with. Uh, But we still had to go through the surgeries. Uh, She had four surgeries in one year, but she didn't have to take any further treatment after that. 
But it was a struggle again, and all those questions again came up. And how do you not fall into the trap of thinking, come on, Lord, you know, aren't I doing enough good things here? Aren't we making all the right decisions for you? Why are you giving us these crosses? Did, did that come into the uh, equation for you guys? How couldn't they? Mm. How couldn't they? Uh, I, I always try to remember, though, that Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, pick up your cross and follow me uh, daily. Mm-hmm. So people have different crosses. Um, the questions are always there. Uh, I, I never question God's plan. Sometimes I look and say, I, I never asked why either. I try not to ask why, because th- that brings the focus back on what my needs are and what my wants are, and I try not to do that. We just, through prayer, and I think that that's the best way to deal with it, is just through prayer and trust, not to ask God why he's doing it, but just to help him lead us through it. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that the the situation that you and Susan went through with her health would also um, provide an opportunity for you to perhaps counsel others also going on that same walk. If people had any kinds of questions, we would be more than willing to, to talk with them about that walk because it, it's not an easy one. And while we can't say this is what you should do, we can say this is how we dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And continue to deal with it, because yeah. it's it's always something that's in the back of our minds. It always is. It always is. You know, sometimes, Deacon Doug, people on the outside might look at a married deacon and see a conflict that he has two vocations, that he has marriage and holy orders. Um, talk about that. Talk about, first of all, how has the diaconate impacted your marriage? It's been a tremendous asset to our marriage. Um, both of those sacraments, as we recall, are sacraments of service, and they they complement each other very very well. I like to I like to tell people that um, Jesus's ultimate goal for us is a marriage. The Bible ends with the marriage feast in heaven, and that's how we have to look at our vocation as preparing us for that feast that we're going to share with God. So the two the two uh, sacraments complement each, each other very very well. Yeah, it sounds like that. And I would think after you've been married thirty. 33 years? It'll be 33 years in a couple of months. 33 years, um, the the situation with cancer twice, you know, and it, it sounds like you really solidified your marriage, and uh, and that's got to play into your role as a deacon as well. I, I think they both must feed each other. It, it does, and what we didn't talk about before is that was tested again last year. Uh, my wife had a fall and suffered... Um, a crushed vertebrae, mm. and we were we were thinking at the time that it was meta, met, metastatic cancer at the oh, time. Okay, and so you know we were thinking for several months that this is this is what it was. But uh, after after about six months of preparing for three months of preparing for the surgery, three months of uh, getting over it, uh, we did find out that there was no evidence of metastatic cancer. So mm, we were thanks, very very fortunate. Thanks be to God. But, the, but there there again is another test and another challenge place before us but then that too just brought us closer together again which you know i didn't ask you in the beginning but um how did your family of origin how did they uh, feel about you becoming a deacon were they supportive of all of that was it a surprise to them kind of as a way you started out your story where you know religion was was what you did part mm-hmm. of your your mm-hmm. you know your family background but not something you were actively pursuing as a young person was this a surprise to them with my children, it didn't seem to be. Uh, what was really neat was the same 
year that I got ordained, my oldest daughter was going to graduate from high school. So it was, we were looking at two celebrations at the same time, and my youngest daughter was only five. Mm. So it was always a part of her life. What was interesting is when I told my parents that I was going to become a deacon, this goes back to that whole story of the call. Uh, we had our mom and dad over to our house one day, and they were sitting on the living room floor, and I said, Mom and Dad, I've got something I want to talk to you about. We've been thinking about applying for the diaconate to become a deacon. And I can't remember my mom's exact words, but I remember she kind of clapped her hands together and said, I've been waiting for this. (laughs) So, again, somebody else who sees something in me that I don't. Right. Isn't that interesting? And And we hear that, too, as well from our guests. You know, one of the many de- the difficulties for, for the deacons is the balance of ministry, work, and family, because you're still working. I am. You have your family, even though your kids are a little bit older, you, you still have kids, and, you know, so how do you get that balance? How do you achieve that balance? Sometimes I don't know how 24 hours are actually in a day. <laughs> um, I really don't. Uh, I'm fortunate right now that I do work for the parish, so I, I work as a DRE and administrative assistant, but I try not to have that particular job, if you will, interfere with my diaconal ministry, which which needs to be kept separate. Mm-hmm. They overlap to a degree. Um, now that my children are all grown and out of the house, s- some of that time is freed up. But, but it really takes a lot of prayer and patience on my part and my wife's part, because we do have to remember that the family does come first. There are times where you're called to be away from the family, and sometimes those times are not the easiest. But I think that the family is also very uh, patient about that and understanding. Yeah, They've and been very forgiving. And there has to be, you know, mm-hmm. when dad becomes a deacon, you know, that is a family commitment in, mm-hmm. in every sense of the word. You've been uh, doing this now for 13 years. Correct. Or probably Does that surprise you that it's 13 years already? Or I, I can't I can't <laughs> imagine that it's been 13. It just seems like yesterday. Yeah. What, what, what brings you particular joy about being a deacon? A couple of things. Um, first of all, visiting people who can't get to Mass or receive the Eucharist themselves, to bring them Jesus, mm. it, it brings such joy. Uh, visiting people at the hospital, um, just because they are so grateful to be able to have somebody visit and bring communion to them. Um, and then one of my favorite ministries is RCIA, mm-hmm. uh, working with people who want to enter the faith or just know more about it, to, pa- to pass on what has been given to me, I guess in St. Paul's words, mm-hmm. um, is, brings me such joy. It's not easy, uh, and, it, and it's very time-consuming, but it does bring a joy that, I, I just can't explain. Do you find anything challenging about being a deacon? Everything. <laughs> Everything. From, from the family life, because, um, again, it, it does interfere sometimes with, with your family life. Um, just trying to, trying to be a mediator sometimes, it seems, between parishioners and the pastors. Since I come from the family and I came from the body of the parish. Very much so, you did. Sometimes yeah. the parishioners come to the deacon to say, mm-hmm. you've got to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've got to lead that person to the pastor rather than be the go-between sure. sometimes. But, um, and, and that works both ways, too. But it's, it's been a challenge, but, it, but I find that most of the time it all works out. And it works very, very well. Was there any issue of you becoming 
going from a, you know, a lay person, a parishioner to a deacon in the same parish, or was that a pretty smooth transition for you? It was a pretty smooth transition because um, we're out in a remote area, mm-hmm. and it was more than likely that I would be assigned to the same parish where I was formed. And it was the parish who first called me and first recognized um, That's true. that ministry. So it was fitting that I would stay in that parish where I was. And I was familiar with, with, what a, with who a deacon is, and the parish was familiar with who a deacon was. So, so it was not something that was a culture shock to them either. And have you been able to assist other men, you know, in their discernment, in their search for, for what God's calling them? Have you been able to kind of advise them or, or help to shape them as they're seeking to answer God's call as perhaps a deacon? We have a gentleman right now who's uh, been accepted in, into the newest class. And, we, you know, we meet, we meet on a regular basis and talk and try to discuss different issues. My wife and I had meetings with him and he, with he and his family um, on, on many of the different, um, challenges and the road that he would face too. Wonderful. So you're kind of planting the seeds for others to come. That's what I hope to do. That's wonderful. Um, Deacon Doug Mould, uh, it was so wonderful to have you share your story. Could you end this with a blessing? Certainly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry of the diaconate and all clergy. We also thank you for the ministry of these people here who are broadcasting uh, to pass on the word. We just ask that you continue this blessing and bless all the people here at this ministry at AM 820 and all the listeners in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks again, Doug, Deacon Doug, for joining us today. God I'm bless. Elizabeth Ficicelli, host for Answering the Call on St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, AM 820. I'm also a Catholic speaker and the author of 15 books for adults and young people, including Where Do Priests Come From?, where do sisters come from, and where do deacons come from. You can visit my website, elizabethficicelli.com, for more on that. Meanwhile, I hope you join us on Tuesdays and Sundays at 1230 for another edition of Answering the Call, when we interview more priests, deacons, and religious about their spiritual journeys. Have a wonderful week. God bless. Answering the Call is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, AM820. Archives of Answering the Call with Elizabeth Ficacelli are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he said-